On this day in 1965, yesterday was released by what band, Verity? The Beatles? Yeah, that's right. An acoustic Paul McCartney composition with a melody that appeared to him in a dream. It is the most covered pop song of all time, with over 3,000 versions, according to the Guinness Book of Records. Ray Charles did one, on Vogue, Marianne Faithful, even the great boys to men. Still boring, but yep. You have to be kidding. I don't like the Beatles, sorry. You're, you're just Peter. No, I, I remember um, the Beatles fondly, and I remember that coming up, but I haven't heard this particular track before, which was just a little bit more poignant than, I think, the original Beatles version, yep. which was a bit more racy. Yes, yes, maybe not racy, racy. but more, yeah, I don't know. Uh, but this is Billy, Speedier, perhaps. Speedier, exactly, oh. yeah. Right, but this yes. is the Billy Eilish, Irish, oh, sorry, Billy Eilish version. Oh, okay. uh, Eye-rolling here. Yeah. You've just... To the nation, disparaged and discarded, you put in the trash the greatest song mm. ever written. Yes, yes, absolutely, yes. <laughs> I'm sorry. Just, wow. I'm, no, I'm not actually sorry. I just like the Rolling Stones. I've always oh, been the Rolling Stones. I don't like the Beatles. Oh dear. Anyway, I love it. I just think, do you think it's the contender for the best song of all time? I say yes. Verity, that's a... <laughs> That's a hard no. It's a hard, a hard no. no. It's an yeah. eye roll of a no. Um, the panel RNZ National. Uh, Wallace, it's Yvonne. I made a sandwich today that blew my mind. Hohepa herb quark, smoked salmon and thinly sliced apple on Vogels. I'm going to try that out. That's, oh, that have, we, have we discovered what quark is yet? Yes, we have. Because <laughs> yeah, nobody knows. I thought it was a okay. scientific term, actually. So, oh, yeah. firstly to Mizuna. Mizuna is a mild-tasting, leafy winter brassica. It's delicious. Okay. And uh, quark is a soft cheese made out of milk, fat, and protein contents low. It was a fat in the 80s. And Weight Watchers used to use it instead of cheese. Right. And apparently um, there's a wonderful quark made in Napier by Hoipa. Uh, nice creamy cheese is very non-fattening. So there you go. The panel are NZ National, Verity Johnson and Peter Dunn. Earlier this week, as we all know, President of the Spanish uh, Football President Federation, uh, Louis Rubiales, resigned from his position following the forced kiss at the FIFA World Cup final. A former New Zealand football firm says, look, this is just the tip of the iceberg. Attitudes need to change. Abuse and harassment are not unusual in football and indeed other sports. We need to work together. She says, with us is Dr. Michelle Cox with a PhD in physical activity and health promotion, former head of New Zealand's women's football, as well as consultant for FIFA, Michelle. Kia ora. Kia ora. Kia ora it's great to have you here, Michelle. As a former football player yourself, this whole episode must have been a pretty tough watch. Oh, absolutely, um, from many perspectives. Um, but as many people have said, I'm glad it's come to the fore because it does need to be addressed, but not just from a elite player perspective but in all functions of the game and all areas of the game and so I'm sort of happy that it's come to the fore but not in the way it did. Yeah and uh, and of someone with experience here too you you mentioning in your piece uh, saying I have worked in over 70 countries and I have seen a lot at all levels of the game some things I really wish I could forget so you've seen this type of thing um, 
firsthand? Yes, I have. As an administrator, as a player, um, I don't want to repeat those episodes right now because I'm in the process of writing a book about some of those stories. And um, But it's pretty serious and it's, it's across the board. And as for you as journalists, um, it, it reaches even into the, the media side. And it, it's really concerning and um, we really need to to be much more active in stopping the behaviour of of people who can get away with it. Mm. Yeah, Verity. Kia ora, Michelle. Um, I'm curious. So something that came up when this debate really kicked off is um, what I, I was talking to a bunch of like just people in my life, and a lot of the dudes were surprised at the level of kind of like endemic. Uh, like kind of low level like grabby or kissy or like inappropriate behaviour that women sort of put up with on a daily basis you know for instance a few weeks ago my barista kissed me um, and I found it really weird and I had a full on breakdown about it but it's very sort of normal in our world not normal as an acceptable normal as in common and I'm like interested when you start talking about this in your world to people are people surprised at how endemic this kind of behaviour is in the sporting world and Mm. what kind of reactions do you get Yes, I think they are, and I think this is why um, you know, it, 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 it's not just sport, right? Mm. We see this across all areas of life, and what's surprised them, I think, is um, that this has blown up to this case, but what's scaring me is the fact that my friends are now too scared to come into the game and and help woman and then we suffer because we don't get that amazing expertise. But I mean, yes, male I coaches. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And they're they're too worried about if they say something wrong or they do something wrong that they and these are really great people. And same from the other side for women, um, coming into a same sex environment, there's there's a lot going on, right? So we need to find that correct balance of making sure people feel comfortable to come into those situations, but also making sure that those individuals, and they are individuals, it's not groups of people, that they behave properly. Peter? Well, I think there are, I mean, I, I agree with much of what Michelle's saying. I think there are, but there, I think there are two sort of, not competing strands here, but two different aspects to it. One is that we've we've moved on from an era, not just in sport but in life generally, where people were much more formal and distant, and you know, a shake a shaking of the hands was about as far as any sort of physical contact got. To one where people are much more open in their physical contact these days, and I think also in the sporting environment, of course, you know, the the, the hugging after someone scores a goal or whatever has become much more commonplace than it was. Some of that is definitely sexualized and quite um, repressive. But I suspect some of it is quite innocent. And I'm just trying to work out how you... Yeah. How you draw the line between the sort of the innocent hug? I don't think um, in the in the um, 
case after the World Cup and the Hermoso case, it looked to me to be a very deliberate act by uh, Mr Rubiales, and I don't think that was justified. But I just wonder, you know, where the line between the sort of the innocent, um, non-provocative, non-intended-to-be-angry um, action and the really insulting, uh, patronising, repressive action. Where that's, that, a where point, that line's that, that's a point some listeners are making also, Michelle. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I um, look. You, it's a really fine line. Mm. Um, I'm someone who's very huggy and very affectionate, and and I appreciate that from my coaches. Some people don't, but what I think the interesting case with the Spanish was is this has been something that's it's it wasn't just the Hermoso incident that was that was just a culmination of many many years of bad behavior from the spanish federation mm. right and and they, if you're a, so if you sorry to interrupt but if you're an, a new, if you're a international player and you're you're opting to step down from a world cup which is the pinnacle of your career because of that reason there must be something going on mm. Mm. And I think, sorry, no, 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 you go. go. I was just going to say, I was going to say, Michelle, I agree. And I think in this case, when people are confused about what constitutes friendly as opposed to what constitutes inappropriate, you need to really ask the women who are involved in Mm. this situation. So your point that they're willing to stand down and never play again until this guy was out is indicative of a much bigger problem um, of bad behavior, of abuse of power of sexualizing and taking advantage and that kind of thing. And I think it's also like, it's easy from the outside if you've never had this happen to you, if you've never been groped in public or you've never had your boss hit on you, you've never never had that. And a lot of men don't get that in a daily experience, you know. I mean, I don't think your barista's ever tried to kiss you, Wallace. Now, if you don't have that on the daily, I think it's easier to sort of be like, oh, well, where's the line between friendly and inappropriate? And if if you don't know, ask the women, you know, ask them. Yeah, no, absolutely agree with you, Verity. I I can feel it. I know when yeah, it's an appropriate. You, know. you always know. Yeah. Oh, okay, but because, Michelle, yeah, do you think, the line, right? do you yeah, think that the and I think you touched on this point at the beginning, the, the incident that occurred in, in um, Sydney. Do you think that that's actually now going to encourage more women to speak out in these types of situations, or will they still take the reaction that you know I'm just not going to get involved? I don't, don't want to don't want to be there. Will they? Because well, it seems to me, if you if you if you get people saying that's a line that's been crossed, it's unacceptable. More frequently, then you redefine where that line should be. You'll know more than anyone <laughs> what the consequences are of speaking out, and that's mm. the problem. Yeah. Um, because maybe that this may help all the players, right? But yeah. in the administration, in journalism, and and I'm not talking about just male to female, I'm talking about same-sex abuse. Mm. So what I'm saying is it depends on the consequences as to whether people will be brave enough to speak out. Michelle, pleasure to have you on the panel. Mm. I appreciate it. Kia ora. Uh, That's Dr Michelle Cox there, uh, former head of New Zealand Women's Football 
former football firm there. It is uh, 14 away from five, the panel. Stadium assets were tested, were sweated, as they say, with the Women's FIFA World Cup recently. Amazing to see an at-capacity Eden Park, for example. But what sort of stadium is best for Tamaki Makoto? A working group seeks to find out answers. Expressions of interest close September 18. With us, Councillor Shane Henderson chairs the Stadium Venues Political Working Group. Kia ora, Shane. Kia ora, how's it going? Very well. We have four stadiums, Mount Smart, North Harbour, Western Springs, Eden Park. What do we really need? We do. Um, we are doing this working group here to see if we actually need a national stadium, so a large mm. stadium that can compete both regionally and globally for major events. Uh, Auckland's done major events really well in the past. We've got to keep that momentum going and keep a schedule of events going, and this might be part of the puzzle as well. Oh, that's interesting. A national stadium, Peter, no, in, a way, that in a way that we have a national museum. And that was going to be my question. I'm glad Shane raised it because it seems to me that one of the risks in all of this is you take, and I'm... I, I'm a, I guess I'm in the Jaffa camp, but um, you know, you take it's not just the four stadia in Auckland. There's the issue of where, where Wellington Stadium fits in, where where Dunedin, where Christchurch, where some of the other provincial centres building stadiums fit in. You know, we're, we're at risk, it seems to me, of building stadiums for the sake of it. We need to have some sort of national strategy, and I'm pleased to see that that Shane's identifying this early on. Yeah, I think we do need a national strategy and we need to work with other centres as well. Mm. But also we even need to look internationally. We need to look at how we're fitting in with Australia and how we can get uh, events that go there to come here as well. So Mm. it's a bigger picture thing and it's a a bit of ambition and hope for Auckland. Peter, I'm sorry, Verity, do you want to... You said to me off there that you've never even set foot in a stadium. No, I have never been to a stadium and have virtually, like, I don't even know why you would go sport. I'm assuming sport, right? Like, And, like, Lizzo concerts. But that's, I, I'm assuming Well, that's, that's the, the question, is. isn't it? Uh, a stadium suit and fit for all. Well, uh, here's one, Shane. Uh, there is a stadium called Eden Park. Uh, I was there on Saturday to watch the glorious MPC. Not a lot of people there. There's 900 people. But a 2.0 version, you've got a retractable roof, a capacity of 60,000, a bigger field. Your thoughts? Yeah, I'm expecting an expression of interest from Eden Park for that 2.0 proposal. Um, but there'll be other expressions of interest as well, and we've got to weigh them all up and see what's finally best for Auckland. Pretty interesting um, discussion, isn't it? Uh, what about um, the grand plan of a mighty waterfront stadium in the CBD? That was full golf's idea, wasn't it? Is that something that might still be on the table? Well, that's just it, yeah. I'd imagine there'll be an expression of interest from that sort of area as well. Um, and, you know, every couple of months we hear about we should put a stadium here or there or we should mm. refurbish this mm. one. It's time to finally settle the question. Yeah. And it's not about funding and, and things like that at this stage. It's more about Auckland has a preference, and if we were to do a national stadium, this is what we're going to do. And if you were to do a national stadium, it's not just for the traditional sports, but it's for things like concerts, but it's also... You know, there's talk about whether we can ever host or be part of host, co-hosting a Commonwealth or even Olympic Games again. It's, it's all those sorts of issues must come into it as well, surely. Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, this sort of stuff brings huge economic benefits mm. to Auckland. Uh, I mean, for example, $74 million last year we gained from major events here in the city. Um, but you're right, it's not just sports. It's also cultural events. Mm. Uh, it's also gigs. It's all that kind of stuff. Mm. And it's not just Auckland. It's for New Zealand. 
Oh, correct, correct. We get a lot of uh, interregional travel, people coming yeah. up to see our beautiful city, and that's fantastic. Very interesting concept, Shane. I uh, never really thought about it. Uh, the idea of a national stadium. Uh, that'll get the punters uh, going, uh, you can be sure. For now, Shane, welcome. Oh, kia ora. Good to have you here. Thank that's you. Shane Henderson there, who chairs the Stadium Venues Political Working uh, Group. Um, a lot of feedback, thank you for that, um, on Quark, Mizuna, uh, and also um, Verity Johnson's um, complete and utter dismissal of the Beatles. <laughs> um, uh. Well, someone says, well, I'm with Verity, yesterday is yawn and the Beatles are overrated. Thank you. Um, another one, I was born in 69 and the Beatles bore me. I resent how they've hijacked popular culture. I agree. <laughs> yes, car pie. Kia ora. Mm. Yeah, the Beatles have hijacked popular culture. Yeah, sure. I think they moved into a vacuum at the time, actually, and it was relatively easy for them. Yeah, yeah true. Yeah, John says, Verity, you don't have to like the Beatles, but at least give them the credit for writing a great song. To just roll your eyes, you display your shallow Appreciation. No, darling, I oh. just have a much finer appreciation for art than that. I'm just not interested in self-whining drivel. I don't like Adele for the same reasons. Listen to the Rolling Stones and tell me that those lyrics don't make you want to jump up and seize life by, well, <laughs> by the scruff of its neck. That is how That is how you should feel when you listen to music. You don't want to be weeping in a corner. God. Sorry. <laughs> Beatles hate a verity if you just missed that part. Uh, finally, on the programme, schools in Sweden are bringing back printed books and guess what? Handwriting. The Swedish Minister for Schools, Lotta Edholm, has been critical of widespread use, tech use in the classroom. So is handwriting part of the answer to literacy? How's yours? Mine is shocking. Very, very bad handwriting where once it was good. With us is literacy specialist Belinda Blickduggan. Kia ora, Belinda. Kia ora. So you're very, very versed, uh, in fact a specialist in this notion of handwriting in schools. What, what impact does handwriting have on literacy, do you think? Handwriting, oh, there's so many benefits from teaching handwriting in our schools. And the research really shows us that it's crucial to literacy development. Uh, there are a couple of reasons, the main reasons being it frees up the working memory. So if children are learning to do their handwriting early and get lots and lots of repetition and practice throughout their primary and intermediate years, then they develop this automaticity and they're able to get their ideas down quickly. If we um, struggle to form our letters, uh, then it, then we're compromising all that uh, working memory and all that ability to actually write mm. what we want to say. Well, I can and, clearly I yeah. can clearly recall my uh, handwriting, and I had beautiful handwriting uh, when I was at primary school. It was a major yes. focus, but I've just written uh, a small sentence. Verity, what does this say? <laughs> uh, all by. Try writing it with your other hand. <laughs> oh, I, I have shocking writing. It says, oh, all my fallen. troubles seem so far away. Oh. Often, yeah. you know, when we're working with teachers and so on, that's how I, how, I, how I introduce it. I'll ask them to write something, first of all, with their dominant hand, and then they have to switch it, and then they get this idea that 
you know, if you if you are having to think about what you're doing, then it's going to be a lot harder. That's amazing. That's, That's amazing, Peter. Yeah. Well, when I, I'm just thinking, when I was a minister, I used to send handwritten notes to my officials, and I was told yeah. once that there were literally two people in the department that could read my writing. <laughs> <laughs> but I do, rem- I do remember when I was at school, I'm sure, I don't know whether you remember these, Wallace, the slant and, and um, um, yeah. Belinda May, the slanted lines that we had to so- yes. sort of form our letters on yeah. and, and learn how yeah. to write that way. We'd trace them. Yeah. Is that, is, that, the that, is that still in use and still in vogue? Uh, it's a long I'm time trying ago. to bring it back. I'm trying to bring it back <laughs> because, you know, we've got a lot of children who are really struggling with handwriting, mm. currently working with some... Uh, older students at secondary school and it's very hard to read what you know, those children studying Cambridge and IV and things like that they're still handwriting their exams and because they haven't been taught the speed um, and the ability to write at speed and uh, legibly at the same time then it really is compromised. Does literacy go hand in hand with that? Absolutely. So with the little little children, especially when they're learning um, letters and letter recognition, if you actually write a letter, you're more likely to remember it than if you Mm. look at it on a Mm. screen or anything like that. You know, the motor plan, the whole whole concept of actually forming the letter where it sits on the line, line, all those things. Oh, I understand. Yeah, Verity. Yeah. Yeah. No. Um, Belinda, I'm curious. Like, is this also like partly a reaction against the rise of like ChatGPT and the idea of AI being involved in digital devices in schools? Because obviously, if you're handwriting, you can't fake that in an exam. Uh, yes. Mm. Uh, I think there is some some um, motivation there, um, and certainly, I think secondary schools will be looking at that as well. They're sort of in that conundrum where, or oh, do you know how do how do we know if it's it's ChatGPT, or is it the, the original work? So there could be a swing back to actually writing. Oh, DME, Belinda, here's one for you. My 13 year old son's handwriting is atrocious. He can't even hold a pen right. I've tried mm-hmm. correcting it. Is this taught in school? It doesn't seem to be a priority. No, and and I would say it hasn't been. Uh, I did a study of about 100 and 850 teachers last year, and since the early 2000s, about 90% of teachers were not being trained in teaching of handwriting at at teacher training institutions. So you can imagine they're coming out not knowing, so it's a systemic problem. Well, all I can say is all power to you in trying to restore that art. I think it's really important. And I think it's the the key to communication, isn't it? And uh, your own identity sort of comes out of that. I'm inspired. Mm-hmm. I'm inspired. I'm going to go home yeah. and think about think about writing a letter one day. Um, yeah. Belinda Kiora, good to have you here. Literacy yeah. specialist Belinda Blick Duggan. It's a nice thought to end on of a Thursday, though, isn't it? That the notion of receiving, mm. oh, a handwritten letter. Yeah, I, I, or, you know, I on nice paper. I, I'm yeah. a big fan yeah. of nice stationery. I buy stationery specifically to send notes to. Do you? Yeah, I do. Yeah, like really fancy ones. I'll send you one, Peter, and you can see if you can read my handwriting. Yes. Well, I, 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 I wager if I send you a reply, you won't be able to read it. <laughs> be like an ant danced in. Are ink. we? Are we starting a pen pal club on the oh, panel? Oh my god! god. <laughs> it's the most radio New Zealand club ever. <laughs> Good old pen pal club. Mm. There probably used to be a Radio New Zealand pen pal club many years ago, you know. (laughs) 
I don't doubt it. And I bet those those grey glass cups that they were on drink out of at the same yes, time yes. still were being the used ones, to write those crumb ones. Good old Arkarok ones. Very good. Yep. Good on you both. That's uh, Verity Johnson and Peter Dunn. I'm Wallace Chippen uh, back on Friday. Lots to discuss and power about it, of course. Uh, see you then, 3.45 for now. Lisa Owen with Checkpoint.